right, y'all. So Philippians chapter 2. Um, I'm not going to lie. I, uh, in looking through Philippians and planning out Philippians chapter 2, in, inevitably got to this part, and I was like, okay, Lord, what are you going to be doing through this for us? Um, like, what do we see of your glory? Like, if, if all of Scripture is pointing back to you and your glory, then, and we, but we know that these are real people in real situations, and then, Lord, what are you going to do with this passage of Timothy and Epaphroditus? And you know God. He's always so clear um, whenever you begin to look at the context and you begin to understand um, the, understand more of it's, it's beyond us. Like, Scripture wasn't written about us. It was written about God, and it's, it's written for us so that we can understand Him more, so that we can know of Him more and more. And, uh, and so what He'll do in His Word is He'll provide prayers for us to model. He'll tell us sins to forsake. He'll, he'll give us promises that we can claim and that we can remember. But then He also gives us examples to follow. And that's what I think we see in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, that's what God really, as I started reading through this and studying, you know what I was really convicted of? I'm just going to kind of tell you kind of a refrain that you're going to hear all the way up to the end is, I always think about Paul. I think about Peter. I don't think about Timothy. I don't think about Epaphroditus. But you know what? Praise God for their ministry because, because they fulfilled their ministry, Paul and Peter were able to fulfill their ministry. And that's what I think God wants us to see is, if you look through Philippians, yes, to live as Christ is kind of the banner of it all, but he's, it's that call for unity. It's that joy of the faith. It's how we all work alongside one another, striving to make much of Christ so that he is the gain and our death is, is, is what we, we approach and what we um, embrace. So, so here we go. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through 30. Andy, if you will do me one quick favor, will you go make sure that they can all still hear? Uh, I think we got all the audio fixed. Um, Philippians 2, 19 through 30 says, Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly, I'm sorry, that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So that's our passage. And you know who... Who Paul spends his energy talking about? Timothy and Epaphroditus. You know what you and I need to, to glean from this and learn from? Timothy and Epaphroditus. They are his co-workers in the faith. So the, the title of this sermon is really just co-workers in the faith. You and I, to be clear, we are co-workers in the faith. Marwan and Marcia Bulzaloff and Dubai, they are co-workers in the faith. 
other churches as they gather and proclaim the gospel, we are co-workers in the faith. And you might say, I don't do anything except take the trash out whenever we have fellowship meals. Thank you for being a co-worker in the faith. But you and I, as long as we proclaim Christ, we are to be working as co-workers. And that's what Paul says. So, so the first point I really want to look at, I just called not the guy. Like that's the first main point, not the guy. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're not the guy. You know who the guy is? And what I mean by that is whenever we look back, you know who the guy that I look back in most of the New Testament is? And I'm like, man, I wish I could be like him. Paul, he's the guy. He's the one who would, he had the, the um, conversion on the road to Damascus. And so he has this great testimony. And then he travels town to town and he trains leaders. He plants churches. He sends others out. He's writing all these letters to churches, correcting them and offering reproof. And then he's encouraging them. We think about Paul. We think about Peter. Think about the Old Testament. We're thinking about Moses. We're thinking about Noah. He built a boat and saved the world through his boat. I think that's pretty cool. Okay. We think about David and we think about Solomon. We think about Esther. We think about women of the faith and how, how they played a role. Like we think about all these heroes. We think about the guys and the gals that God used. And I think what this passage reminded me of is, you know, those were the guys. You know, that's the guy who, who was doing that. That was Paul. He was doing that. He's writing the letter to the Philippians. And here's what I, I saw. He did not stand alone. He did not complete his work alone. I want to take you to a really cool passage for me uh, in Exodus 17. So I have these, these life verses, you know, like these verses that whenever I read them, like, I mean, it just, it resonates with me. Um, and you're going to have those, and they won't be the same as mine. That's how the scripture moves and equips each one of us. But go to Exodus. So you're going to be going all the way to the Old Testament. You're going to get to Exodus chapter 17. And there's this really cool image that I think helps frame what we see with Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. So Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 14. And so here's what we have, starting in verse 8 of Exodus 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now watch this. Verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. And then verse 12 is the one that always stops me. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, so that his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Do you know what I love about that passage? Is that Moses said, as long as my hands are raised, then the Lord will prevail in this. Not because Moses is anything mighty, but because this is his, his symbol. Like this is his expression of this is how God is going to visibly be giving victory. And while Moses is doing this, holding the staff up and there is victory, his arms grow weary. And so he'll lower his arms. And as he does, and the, the tide shifts 
and Israel begins to lose. And then as soon as he puts his arms back up, so Aaron and her, co-workers alongside him, they realize Moses is weary and can't do this on his own. Moses is not the strength. It's the expression of what he's doing to proclaim God. And so they bring him a rock, and they, they help Moses to sit down. And so he's sitting there, and he's tired. And then one, I'm going to do a wall sit here. This is going to be wonderful on Zoom, I'm sure, because I'm totally going to crash. But he's, doing, he's sitting here on a rock, and then Aaron comes along one side and, and lifts up this arm, and, and then the other on the other side. And so they have to hold up Moses' arms because Moses in his own strength cannot do it. I love that image. But you know who I think of the most? Moses. I don't think of Aaron and her a whole lot. But you know that Aaron spoke for Moses because Moses kept arguing with God and making excuses. And God finally said, I'm going to give you Aaron. You teach Aaron everything. And I'm going to be with both of you. But Aaron will be the mouthpiece. I don't think of Aaron. I think of, think of Moses. Right? But y'all, Moses, his arms grew weary. And God had sent two co-workers whose, whose fame would really be lost in time. We don't talk about Aaron and her anymore. We talk about Moses. And there's a reason. I get it. Incredible leader. Called out by God. But he wasn't called out to be alone. That's what I want you to see. I think that that's what we're going to see with Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Moses, y'all, it's a, that scene... It's, a, it's, it's really a beautiful scene of camaraderie for the sake of the glory of God. Here is the one whom God has called out, and yet he's weary and tired. And we're going to hold his arms up. What does that look like in our culture today? I think we can see this in churches. I mean, it would, it would look like a pastor. It would look like a pastor or a leader growing tired They're doing God's work. They're doing what they've been called to. They, they grow tired. They are weary and as long as they stand in the pulpit or, or post and they're proclaiming, then, then the victory is, is going out and the darkness is trembling. But when they grow tired or weary or discouraged and they start to move back, that's honestly, y'all, whenever God has put men and women of faith alongside that pastor and they should be holding his arms up. I will tell you, I am so incredibly thankful that my arms have grown weary. They have. I've had to sit down. Some of you have had to, to sit down with me, and, and my poor wife is a great arm lifter. She might not feel like it because she's also a truth teller, but the truth is what I need to get my arms lifted back up. But some of you men are not even aware that the text comes through at just the right time. And you're not physically lifting my arm up, but you are. You're giving me that extra, or you're saying, you know what? That's really not important, Ricky. And what you're doing is you're, you're telling me it's okay to rest. You are an incredible church of co-workers in the faith. I want you to see what Timothy and Epaphroditus do alongside Paul. But I want you to see what Aaron and her did. But I can tell you that there are many pastors who have not experienced what I have experienced. They grow weary and tired and discouraged their anxiety is real. Their depression is real. They're standing in the pulpit. They're proclaiming. They're doing all that they can. And in our culture, what we tend to do is, well, they'll probably pull out of it. They're just having an off season. They just need some space. Or I know you've had to, I hope not, but I, I just know it had to be likely. You go out to lunch or you're sitting with others and you hear other people was well, just not preaching like you used to. 
Seems like he seems like he's kind of pulling his punches right now. I, I don't know why the pastor doesn't just blah blah. I mean, it's just the nature of where we are. That happens in a lot of churches, and the the pastor grows weary, and instead of arm lifters, there's additional criticism that's that's coming from within. Even though it's never said, it's just more. Well, why isn't this being done? They can he can fix this, but I can also tell you that that for the pastor, that uh, there are times. I can just be very, there are times of weariness. There are times of incredible discouragement through no fault of anybody else's except that the pastors have an enemy just like you have an enemy. Moses has had an enemy just like you and I have an enemy. Paul had an enemy and he was surrounded by Timothy and Epaphroditus. What happens in our modern culture is we tend to criticize and wait for the replacement rather than seeking to raise the arms. So thank you, Cross Life, that you keep my arms raised. You don't know you're doing it, but you do it. But should God move us on to other churches, I pray that this becomes a faithful ministry of yours. If he moves me on to to another church, you know, 30 decades from now, right? But if he were to do that, or he were to move you on to other churches, wherever it is that he sends you, whatever pastor you walk alongside, just know this. God may be calling you to work alongside them for the sake of keeping their arms raised so that his glory can continue going out. And if you don't fulfill that ministry, who will? So Aaron and her, they, they, weren't, they weren't the guy. They weren't Moses. And they were never meant to be. Their ministry was different. When you look at it this way, that we get the honor to serve alongside them. Whoever it is that God puts in that ministry, I don't mean it in any kind of self-serving way of, hey, Ricky, but you're the pastor saying that we're supposed to come alongside you. No, I'm saying that I need to be reminded of this, that I don't stand alone. I have coworkers in the faith that are there to, to support and walk alongside me. But you know what? I have pastor friends, and they need me to come alongside them and lift their arms because nobody else is. That's one of the ministries that I feel I've been called to. I feel like I'm more of an arm lifter than one who should be standing at the center. I think that's part of my ministry um, at Union Christian Academy, to come alongside and keep people's arms lifted up so that the ministry can keep going forward. It is an honor that we get to serve alongside those who have been called. Why? Because God has also called us to this honor. As they serve the Lord in their role... So you serve the Lord in your role. And in this, there's a beautiful display of how the church should function, where every part is coming together and everybody is supporting one another. Y'all, all of this is ministry. Every single bit of it is ministry. So, so here's where I'm going with Exodus 18. Here's what we see. Um, we see a glimpse of what we're going to see with Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Look at Paul's, the end of all of Paul's letters. Don't do it right now. But look at Paul's letters in the beginning and in the end of each one of those. And what you'll see is this, that Paul is always recognizing fellow Christians who are working alongside him. You should really look at the end of those letters. He is always surrounded by others who are doing work alongside him. Look at the beginning of the letters, even the beginning of Philippians. Listen to this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul didn't say, here I am, Paul, doing this all on my own, but he always recognizes these fellow workers. And here's why. He did not do his ministry alone because he could not do it and because simply he was not alone. Y'all, he may be the one that we think of, 
but he is surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that allows him and them to fulfill their ministry. So we need this from Timothy and Epaphroditus. What we need for our equipping and for God's glory is this, to see the beauty of being a co-worker for Christ and to see how God uses we ordinary men and women for his glory. That's what I I think we're going to glean from this. So with that said, I want to say this, three things. Praise God for Paul's ministry. But you know what? Praise God for Timothy's ministry and praise God for Epaphroditus' ministry. All right, I want, to look at, I want to look at Timothy. Look at verses 19 through 24. Um, we're going to look at Timothy, and we're going to look at Epaphroditus, and then we're going to go from here. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord, Jesus, to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So what do we see here? That Paul wants to send Timothy to the Philippians, back to the Philippians. This is a letter that Paul is writing to the Philippians. And, and, and what I want you to catch is, that he says, I want to send Timothy to you so that I can hear good news and be cheered up. There is no instant messaging. There are no texts. There is no Zoom component. There is no just hopping in your car. This is a process. Paul is going to get information about the Philippians by sending Timothy to them and then waiting on Timothy to come back. So he says, I'm about to send Timothy to you. And here's, I've got about three things I think that we need to see about Timothy. First off, it's this. Timothy was there at the beginning of the Philippian church. We might have forgotten this. So hold your place there and go to Acts chapter 16. So we're going to start at Acts chapter 16, verse 1, because I just want you to see this. Timothy was there in the beginning. This is how the Philippians know who Timothy is, and they know of his, quote, proven worth, and they know of Paul and how they worked alongside another, because watch this. In in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, Luke writes, Paul, St. Paul who wrote Philippians, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. Watch this. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, now here's what you're... We're going to stop right there, okay? Paul just met Timothy, who was already a believer, and he takes Timothy alongside him and says, I want you to come do ministry with me. So now if you scroll to the end of chapter 16, what you're going to see is... We're not going to reread it all. I'm just going to remind you that this is where the church at Philippi began. So in chapter 16, verse 1, Paul meets Timothy. By the end of chapter 16... It's talking about Paul and Peter or Silas and how they've been in prison and how they go out and they meet Lydia and they meet the jailer and they meet the, uh, the, the slave girl who's possessed by a demon and has divination. Like That was the beginning of the Philippian church and Timothy was alongside Paul and Peter there. Timothy was there at the founding of the Philippian church. So just remember that. Whenever Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to you, The Philippians knew who Timothy was because he was there in the beginning with them. And you know 
what we don't see. After um, verses 1 through 3, we get to the planting of the Philippian church. It talks about Paul and Peter, and it doesn't talk about Timothy. But we know that he was there because at the beginning of Acts chapter 16, Paul says that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So from the beginning of Paul and Timothy, then there's the Philippian church almost immediately. So I just wanted you to remember or to to look at that. Timothy was there at the beginning of the Philippian church. Number two, Timothy is the faithful, faithful co-worker with Paul. Watch this. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. We're going we're to go to Thessalonians and Corinthians. But go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. Timothy is scattered all throughout Scripture. Right? All throughout it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, And we sent Timothy... We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So now you're going to be turning to your left, get to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're doing some Bible Olympics here. I'm seeing how well you all know your Bible. I put cheater tabs in mine. Just so you all know, pastors do that. They always have little marks that they can use to flip quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Just joking, the real pastors don't do that. They know their Bible by the thumbprints. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Y'all can go ahead and go back to Philippians, but listen to this. Timothy's also mentioning the opening of many letters, including Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, and Corinthians. First and second Timothy. That's the same Timothy that Paul is now writing to as Timothy is working on church planting and, and putting a church in order. And so he is all throughout. And you know who I don't think of? Timothy. But, but Timothy was a faithful co-worker of Paul to the degree that he was kind of, he was the one that Paul sent in to take care of stuff. Paul could trust Timothy to go and to hold the line and to proclaim the gospel and put everything in place. He was a faithful co-worker that I admittedly forget. I think of Paul. I remember Timothy whenever I get to First and Second Timothy. But he was a faithful co-worker. And now look at this. Number three, Timothy is special to Paul. I mean, Paul's surrounded by all these co-workers, and then there's Timothy. You heard, if you go back, he's my beloved. He was my, my child in the faith. As you read First and Second Timothy, you hear the heart of a, of a father pastoring a child in a pastoral way. There's a deep intimacy with, with Timothy. You're back in Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 20 through 22 very quickly. Paul says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, Philippians. No one like Timothy. Why? For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Like just you hear that and it says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. He's like a son with a father, and he has served with me. Only Timothy, 
Y'all get this. Only Timothy would, Timothy would be genuinely concerned for their welfare. And then Paul says, because the others are only concerned about their own interests and not Jesus Christ. Now, I've got to stop and say, but what we should all be asking, but weren't they all Christians? Absolutely. But y'all, they, they probably were Christians, but they were probably immature, regardless of their age, so that their desire was to fulfill their own interests. They would go, the way Paul writes this, they might go care for the Philippians and check in on the Philippians. They might also be building a resume or looking for an opportunity to serve or to make something of their name. We know that that was going on in Paul's day. Paul even says that there are others who are proclaiming Christ because of my imprisonment. Some because they're supporting me and they're proclaiming the gospel to send it on out. Some in spite of me. And Paul says earlier, I don't care as long as Christ is proclaimed. But Paul says, I can only send you one person who has a genuine heart to proclaim the gospel and check, check on you with the same heart that I would, and that is Timothy. Everybody else around me is going to come, and while they may serve you, they're going to be looking out for their own interest as well. And you, Philippians, co-workers in Christ, you don't deserve that. You deserve Timothy. There's a special relationship between Timothy and Paul. Here's what I wrote. Just a note for me, but maybe it helps you. The fullness, like the full depth, the fullness of Christ-born, faith-infused humility is that we look solely to the interest of Christ and others, and we consider not ourselves. Here is Timothy. Listen to that one more time. The fullness, the depth of Christ-born, faith-infused humility is that we look solely to the interest of Christ and others and not ourselves. Here is Timothy. He comes in and Paul says, you're going to Thessalonica. He goes, he serves, he comes back. Paul says, I'm sending you now to Philippi. He goes, he serves. He sits in prison with Paul. And he's there as the letters are being written. Here is Timothy, a faithful co-worker. Y'all, so great is the God that Timothy serves that he can be so humble as to care for others and Jesus. You and I do not sit around enough and consider Timothy. We think of Paul. And you know what? I don't think that Timothy would want us to consider him. He seems way too busy serving others and God to worry about whether others consider him. Consider how counter that is to where we are today. We don't think enough about Timothy. And you know what? Timothy doesn't care. I really genuinely believe everything we see of Timothy, especially the heart of this letter, is Timothy's too busy serving God and others. He doesn't care if he's the one who's noticing gets the recognition. He cares that the gospel's going out and that he's holding up the arms of Paul. Look at Epaphroditus. Paul says, verse 25, we're going to focus on this guy now for a while. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. That's Paul saying, if Epaphroditus had died, my sorrow would be deep. I couldn't stand to lose Epaphroditus. He says, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28, I, Paul, am the more eager to send him, Epaphroditus, therefore, so that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You and I do not know much about Epaphroditus, just so you know. 
There's really not a whole lot. He has been lost in the passing of time. We have glimpses of him. He's been lost in the passing of time. But we take heart in this, that the Lord is faithful and knows of Epaphroditus' full work for his name. You and I will be forgotten. Cross life will be forgotten. There are many church planters and many pastors. Their goal is to, and I say goal, it sounds kind of snarky, but it's not. They want to plant a church now that they know is going to be here 25 to 30 years from now. That 80 years from now, it's still standing. It's still thriving. It's still going strong. Mine's not that I'm not that ambitious. I'm just that simple. Crossoff may not be here in 15 years, y'all. It may not be here in 10. God willing, it will be. What I care about, my heart, is that in the moment right now, we're glorifying God as much as we possibly can. That's my heart. Now, that totally messes up other pastors and church planters. Well, what do you have in store for long-term sustainability? The sovereignty of God. Like, should he sustain us? Here we are. But should he not, with what he's given us in this moment, may we glorify him with our lives. That's my heart. You and I will be lost in the passing of time. Cross life will be lost in the passing of time. None of the churches that were planted in Acts and that we saw go forth, none of those original churches are still there. They went out, they planted. Churches have a life cycle. They are born and then they die. It's just part of how the world works. Why am I saying this? Epaphroditus, a faithful co-worker, has been lost in the stream of time. And I don't think he cares because Epaphroditus and Timothy are surrounded by the glory of God, knowing that they were faithful in front and beyond and surrounded by a God who knows that they were faithful and he's even more faithful to them. Their perspective is totally different. So we, for, we have forgotten him, but our God has not. Okay, here's some things you should notice about Epaphroditus. Number one, Epaphroditus was sent to Paul from the Philippians to deliver some sort of support. Epaphroditus is there because the Philippians sent him. That's what you see in verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow co-worker, fellow soldier, watch this, and your messenger minister to my need. So the Philippians were there. Paul is here. The Philippians sent um, Epaphroditus in Philippians 4.18. So, so move your eyes across the page or flip one page probably. Philippians 4.18. And we're told, Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Epaphroditus came to Paul from the Philippians to deliver some sort of support. We don't really know fully what that is, but we know that it was very... Uh, It was a fragrant offering. It was a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It was probably monetary um, to the degree so so that the ministry could continue on. So Epaphroditus was sent. Number two, at some point in this process, Epaphroditus, who is a Philippian, now we know, Epaphroditus, who is a Philippian, he grew extremely ill while he was with Paul, and he was about to die. We know this. It says... For he, Epaphroditus, verse 26, for he has been longing for you all, Philippians, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And Paul says he was ill. He was near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me. And so Epaphroditus is is healed. When Epaphroditus hears that the Philippians are concerned for him, get this, he, Epaphroditus, cannot wait to get back to them and to comfort them. 
I think that that's just a beautiful picture. You and I are in a world right now where our church, part of it's virtual and part of it is, is in person. And next week, it might be flipped. There is a longing. My prayer before the service, as Andy and I were praying for you all, was that there would be a longing for as we're scattered and as we're not unified, there would be a longing one for another. Epaphroditus, y'all, that's his home church. That's his home gathering. That's the body to whom he belongs. And he has heard that they are distressed because he was about to die. And that breaks his heart and burns him to the degree that he wants to go back to comfort them so they will no longer be distressed. I think, I really, really genuinely think that that should be the heart of church membership, that we are so committed to one another that we seek to always comfort one another, and we do that by being with one another. But Paul can't stand that they are distressed. I'm sorry, Paphroditus cannot stand that they would be upset that he almost died. He just wants to go back to his home church and say, I'm fine. So Paul's going to send him. Number three, look at verse 29 and 30. Verse 29 and 30 tells us something pretty remarkable about Epaphroditus and why he most likely was so near death. We don't know the illness, but I think that this points to it. Verse 29, Paul says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You see that? Epaphroditus almost died for the work of Christ. He almost died. Why? It says that he risked his life. As I was studying, um, one commentator really dove into this, and you know there, there are scholars and commentators who say, well, he was doing the work of Christ, let's put him into persecution. But one of them just so clearly pointed out, this phrase does not really appear in early uh, literature. To risk his life wasn't a common phrase. It's kind of common for us. That's how we translate it. But in the original, the closest context we have is this. He was, quote, exposing himself to danger. So for Epaphroditus to come from Philippi to be with Paul, he was exposing himself to danger to such a degree that it would cause probably this subsequent or this consequential um, illness. We don't know what those dangers are. We just know that this is such a rare phrase that the closest original context that we have seen in literature from that day was exposing oneself to danger. Like that's the closest meaning that we can find that kind of parallels what was going on um, back then. Why in the world would Epaphroditus do this? Number one, of course, absolutely. Solid, super Christian. He does it all for the glory of God, right? We know that. But Paul tells us, that he exposed himself to danger for this reason, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul is not saying that the Philippians did not send enough. Paul is saying, you Philippians, you couldn't all come to me, so you sent me Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus was for me who you are. He is the fullness of you. That's what was lacking was their presence. He says, but you sent me Epaphroditus. And so committed was Epaphroditus that he would expose himself to danger and illness to bring me the partnership, the full partnership of what you had for me. You aren't here. He is. He is the Philippian church to me. Thank you for sending him. That's what Paul's saying. Y'all, so there's Epaphroditus. Exposes himself to danger at the risk of death. Grows deathly ill. Almost dies. He's healthy. 
And he is one of the reasons that Paul can do his ministry. And you and I do not sit around and consider Epaphroditus enough. We think of Paul. And you know what? I don't think Epaphroditus would want us to consider him. He seems too concerned with serving others for the glory of God, whether we consider him or not. You and I need Timothy and Epaphroditus. We need to remember that this is what gospel-infused, humble service looks like. Now, we don't think of them, but their faithfulness is fueled by the gospel. What a humble glory, I wrote this as as a conclusion. What a humble glory to see yourself so inconsequential in the scheme of life that only the fruit of Christ is the lingering evidence that we did anything here. What a humble glory that we know that we will pass and that the legacy that we may live on is nothing in our name, but that Christ is known even more so though we are forgotten. It's to this that we've been called. It's why Paul does what he does. It's why Epaphroditus does what he does. It's why Timothy does what he does. Not not for themselves, not for their glory, but simply so that Christ may be known more. Because they will forget our names, y'all. They will forget all the details of our lives. They will forget all of our service, they being the world. But may they know of Jesus' name. That changes everything. I believe, y'all, what we really see in Timothy and Epaphroditus, and it seems to, to maybe fit really with how letters work. I told you we keep everything in context as much as we can. Last, last passage before we pray. Look at Philippians 2, 1 through 7. We've been in um, 2, 19 through 30, but you know what came before 2, 19 through 30? Chapter 2, one through se- or verses 1 through 7. It's how the letter's written. I just think it's interesting that Paul wrote to them. And he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, then complete my joy, my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Y'all, there is a call to humble service in light of the gospel, And here are Timothy and Epaphroditus, examples of God-shaped humility that honors Christ. That's what we need to be equipped. We're not the Pauls, and that's okay. We may be the Timothy, we may be the Epaphroditus, we may be the guy in the corner while Paul's writing this letter and talking to Timothy and Epaphroditus, and yet we're the one that's doing this service and make sure that God is being glorified over here. How many saints have been lost in the stream of time? And yet over the course of time, how much more is God known? That's what we've been called to do. Much of him and less of us. Please pray with me. Lord God, would you teach me in my heart to be so much more like a Timothy and Epaphroditus?
Lord, give me the heart of Aaron and her who didn't say, well, just give me the staff. I'll do it. But Lord, who said, this is who God has put in this, in this place, in this position for this time. Lord, give me the, the humility to understand and to grasp and to be ready to count others so much more, in, much more significant than myself. I'm much better moving the rock for somebody to sit on than to hold the staff. Lord, no ministry and no minister is meant to be alone. What we see all throughout Scripture is that you have created your church, the bride, to be a singular body of many parts and each one fulfilling its ministry to the support of the others and the accountability of the others so that we can make much of you. Lord, I pray that you teach us a heart that's humble. Teach us to walk in, in, in light of the gospel and to serve for your name, knowing that we will be forgotten. Lord, we love you. And I thank you for examples like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Lord, may I remember them more. Praise our son's holy name. Amen.